Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Because we are in week three of a series that we are calling Thread of Love. And in the series, uh, we're showing you from a 30,000 feet view, we're showing you that there is one true story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it talks about God's love for the people of the world. And, um, you know, I was thinking about stories this week, and just even maybe more as a side note real quick, um, we all know that the NFL is scripted, right? Like we've all seen those memes, right? I don't think it is, but maybe it is. I don't know. But maybe you could join with me today in praying for a Taylor Swiftless uh, Super Bowl. Uh, this. <laughs> don't boo me. <laughs> no, we need that. We need a Taylor Swiftless uh, uh, NFL. So also, it's a good day always in America when the Cowboys lose. So um, <laughs> that's, that's the football talk uh, that's coming from me today. But uh, I was thinking about stories more than the NFL script. I was thinking about nursery rhymes. I don't know how many of you, I've, I'll tell you some of these nursery rhymes here in a minute, but um, a lot of us, we grew up with these nursery rhymes. We've heard these nursery rhymes before. We've maybe even heard these while we were growing up, maybe things that we said. Um, but when you really stop, and, and again, some of them seem innocent enough, but when you step back and you really think about what's being said and realize what's being said, when you do that, you're like, man, these things are a little bit morbid, a little disturbing, in fact. In fact, here's just a couple of them. Uh, we know this one. Jack and Jill went up a, the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after, Right? And, and this week I read about that, and there's like a whole lot of controversy behind what Jack and Jill were going to do. But when we read about Jack falling down and breaking his crown, listen, Jack was not a king. He wasn't a prince. And so when it talks about his crown, that's his dome. That's his melon. Like, that's his head. Like, we're seeing about this kid who has this skull fracture, you know? And we think it's all fun and games. It's morbid. It's disturbing, right? There's another one. We've probably been singing this one a lot. It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. Here's the rest of that one. He went to bed with a lump on his head and he didn't get up in the morning. What? (laughs) He didn't get up? Why didn't he get up? Because he had a brain injury. He died in his sleep, all right? Like he had some kind of cranium bleeding that's going on. Here's another one. Rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub. I'm not going to touch that one. We're going to move on, okay? <laughs> yep. Here's another one. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, right? Kids in the, the playground holding hands, ha, 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 we all fall down. They're talking about the 1665 plague that killed a quarter of London's population when they all fell down dead. And we're all like, isn't that cute? Isn't that fun? It's morbid. It's disturbing, all right? And here's the last one. This one is about an egg that turns into a scrambled egg for a king. We know this one. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Again, there, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this one of what Humpty Dumpty is. But I read this week that Humpty Dumpty is actually slang for a short, clumsy person. And so again, we're laughing about clumsy people falling off walls and, and all of that. But 
Here's the idea. Today, we are not looking at a nursery rhyme. Today, we're not looking at a fairy tale. We are looking at a real story about a real fall that still are felt. The effects of that fall are still felt today. We're not talking about Humpty Dumpty and his fall. We're talking about Adam and Eve and their fall. They had a great fall. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked all about God's creation, that he created the heavens and the earth. And as you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're going to see that God said, and this was good, and this was good, and this was good, and that's good. The one time he said something wasn't good was when he looked at the guy, but he created a woman, and then it was good, right? And all the men said, amen, right there. And so God said, this was good, this was good. In fact, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, look at what it says. It says, and God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Pause right there because that word very good, very is an adjective that means abundantly and good means right, best, morally correct. And so God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, right, best, morally correct. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. When God saw everything that he had made, it is abundantly right. But if we're honest today, when we look at the world that we live in, we see everything going on, we can't say, man, it is very good. It is abundantly right. We can't say that. I mean, think about it. We live in a world where children are starving and don't even have the basic necessities for food. We live in a world where tens of thousands of people are leaving their homeland as refugees because of war, oppression, persecution. They have nowhere to go and they have no hope. We have people in an instant that can lose everything they have because of natural disasters. We saw that happen in our own city just a month ago. People lost everything. We read stories about people losing lives, people losing buildings, people losing stuff. In an instant, it can all be taken away. Our lives can be turned upside down. We live in a world where hatred runs rampant because of the color of someone's skin. And so when we come to a verse like this in Genesis 1.31, and we read that God is looking at everything that he made, and he's like, man, that is very good. We look at this and we go, I don't get it, God. If what you made was so good, then where did it all go wrong? Here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that the world that we know today is not the world that God originally made. So we got to ask the question, what happened between very good and today? And that's really what we're going to look at as we dive into Genesis chapter 3. So if you got a Bible today, I would encourage you, turn to Genesis 3. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab your smartphone, download the YouVersion Bible app, and uh, there we've got notes, we've got the outline. Uh, You can take notes there as well. If you have a pen and paper, that's great too. Uh, You could do that. But if you don't and you want to take notes, uh, YouVersion, all you need to do to find this, you go to the More tab, the Events tab, you'll see Awaken Church Live, and then you can click on that and follow along there. But the title of today's message, if you're taking notes, is Why the World is a Mess. Why the World is a Mess. And As you're turning to Genesis 3 and getting settled in today, I came across a quote from a guy named A.W. Pink. And what he had to say about Genesis 3, I think, will really help us frame our discussion today. And says this, the third chapter of Genesis is one of the most important in all of the world, or in all of the word of God. Here we find the divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of our human race. See, the answer to why the world is a mess can be answered with one small word, and that word is sin. 
Because all the evil, suffering, death, pain, disease, disasters that we have are a result of sin's effect on God's good creation. You see, the Bible actually uses words to describe sin that are very different than words that we would use to describe sin. Uh, We use words to describe sin like mistake, bad habit, misstep. And we use all of these words to kind of cover up, condone, or justify our sin, our actions. But the Bible uses different words. As a matter of fact, there are many words the Bible uses to describe sin. I want to give you two from the Hebrew, two from the Greek, to help us understand the magnitude of sin. In fact, there's a word in the Hebrew that's used 600 times to describe sin, and it means that which is contrary to God's nature. Here's what that means. When my heart desires something other than God. See, we don't just make little mistakes. We don't just have bad habits. Our hearts desire something other than God. Another word in the Hebrew, it's used 300 times. It's a word that means to step across God's boundary. Here's what that word means. It says, I know God said this, but I know better than God. I know more than him. So I'm going to ignore what God said, choose to do what I want to do, and I'm going to step across God's boundary. Now, the Greek's got a couple words as well. One of them means to miss the mark or to fall short. Here's what that means. God has established a standard of righteousness that is a reflection of himself. And to the decisions and choices we're making, we're constantly falling short of the standard of God. But then there's a word in the Greek where we get our word transgression from. And it means to knowingly rebel against God. What this means is this is a literal shaking of our fist in the face of God, rejecting his authority and rebelling against his way and his truth. So here's what the Bible teaches. God created the world. He spoke everything into existence. And at the end of all of it, he's like, man, this is very good. This is abundantly right. But then we as human beings, we come in, we sinned, we desired something other than God. We stepped across God's boundary as if we knew more than God. We fall short of his righteous standard and we shake our fists in the face of God, deliberately and intentionally rebelling against him. And when we did this, human beings brought a curse into the world and the world has never been the same since. And so today, what I want us to look at as we look at why the world is a mess, there's three things from Genesis 3 that I think will help answer that question today. And so the first one is this, we doubted God's word. We doubted God's word. Again, we know God created everything. Out of nothing, he spoke into existence. Everything we can see, touch, taste, smell, feel, everything came into existence. And he's like, man, that is very good. And then God placed the very first two human beings in that creation, Adam and Eve. And they were able to enjoy a relationship with each other, enjoy a relationship with God. And the Bible even tells us that they had dominion over everything, that they owned it all. But God gave them a rule. Genesis 2, 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, when you do eat from it, you will certainly die. Now think about it. That's a pretty good deal, right? Enjoy your life, live it up, but don't kill yourself. It's a pretty good deal. See, God made his presence known. He communicated his requirements for obedience to Adam and Eve. 
Listen, he didn't leave anything out that was necessary for them to obey and trust him. Satan, however, comes in, works in their lives, and he introduces doubt about God's word. How do we know this? We'll pick up in verse one of chapter three. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now you might be like, well, hold on just a second. If God made everything and it was good, where does this serpent come from? Why is he here? Well, you've got to understand God made two kinds of beings. He made spirit beings and he made human beings. And the Bible tells us in Revelation, and again, we don't fully know this. Some have speculated based off of Revelation that one third of these spirit beings decided to align with this guy named Satan. And it says that one third decided to declare war on God and align with Satan and we're all kicked out of heaven. So where does this guy come from? Well, some people believe that it happens between Genesis 2, 16 and 17 and Genesis chapter 3 that there was this rebellion that took place in the midst of those chapters. And so this great conflict in heaven now spills down into earth, into human history. That Satan decided to rebel against God because he wanted to be like God himself. In fact, Isaiah 14 says it this way. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. The Bible teaches in Ezekiel and other places that God banishes him to the earth. So here's what's going on in Genesis chapter three. Satan is embodying a serpent and he brings about the temptation of Adam and Eve. Satan comes in and he twists and he manipulates God's word. And what he does is he gets Adam and Eve to focus on not all the good that God has given them, but on the things that God has restricted. The reality is it's no different than today. We all overlook the freedom that Jesus gives us and we're stuck on the one or two things that he has forbidden. God is a God who gives incredible liberty and freedom and only minor restrictions. And so Satan's like in verse one, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now Eve replies. She shouldn't have replied, but she does. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, now look what she's going to do here. She's going to add to the command of God. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never said that, did he? We read the rule. He didn't say anything about that. See, what you've got here, you've got liberalism in verse one, taking the word of God and twisting it and distorting it. And then you got legalism in verse two, adding to it. Don't touch. Verse four, it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Satan now is denouncing the word of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate. I love that little tagline because so often we look at it and we're like, well, where's Adam? Well, all this is going down. He's right there. 
He's standing right there watching this whole scene play out. He's letting his wife Eve be the guinea pig and step forward and dive into sin. Even though, if you go back to the rule, if you look back at Genesis 2, God gave him spiritual authority. God gave him spiritual authority over the household to lead his wife, to lead his family. But what does he do? He stands right there and he watches Eve take the fruit and eat it. And so for years, a lot of us, we like to point the finger. Well, it's Eve's fault. It's Eve's fault. It's Eve. That's all Eve's fault. It's not Eve's. It's not all Eve's fault. If Adam would have done his job, none of us would be in this mess. Adam's just as responsible. And I think that's part of Satan's plan here to upset the authority in the home that God had made. And I think Satan's like, man, if I could disrupt this marital relationship, this mirror that's supposed to be God in the church, if I can disrupt that picture, if I can get men to just sit by, be silent, be passive, and just watch death and destruction consume their home, then guess what? I win. Adam and Eve believed the lie. They sinned. They desired something other than God. They stepped across the boundary that God had given, believing we know more than God. They fell, for, they fell short of his righteous standard. And they shook their fist in the face of God, rejecting and rebelling against his authority. And in that moment, sin entered the world and it stained the beauty of what God had made. So here's the second thing we see why the world is the way that it is, why it's a mess. We see the result of sin entering the world. Now you might be thinking, okay, what's the big deal? Two people sinned against God. Why is this such a big deal? We'll give you three reasons why this is a big deal. One is that sin brought death into the world. Again, look at what God said in his rule. He said, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now did Adam and Eve die? No, they didn't die, right? I mean, they did exactly what God said not to do, but they didn't die. Otherwise, we'd have a really short book right here, right? Like verse 7 doesn't say, and then they died, the end, it's over. Look at what verse 7 does say. Then the eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now skip down to verse 24. It says, he, speaking of God, drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Listen, make no mistake of it. They did die. They died spiritually. They lost this ability to have a relationship with God. You see, up until this moment, God's coming and he's hanging out with them in the garden. They're hanging out, enjoying a relationship with each other, enjoying a relationship with their creator. But in Genesis 3, after they sin, God shows up in the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do? They decide to play hide and seek, right? They're hiding from the presence of God. Why? Because they died spiritually. That's why God, in the end of verse 24, has to kick them out of the garden. They lost this ability to have a relationship with God. You say, okay, pastor, but that was them. That has nothing to do with me. Like that was then, this is now, that was then, that has nothing to do with me. What, how does this affect me? Well, uh, Romans chapter five tells us why. 
It says, therefore, just as sin has come into the world through one man and death through the sin, and so death spread to all men because what? All sinned. That's all of us. That doesn't exclude anybody. We all sinned. See, Adam and Eve spiritually were our parents. And because our parents sinned against God, every person who's been born after Adam and Eve has inherited a sinful nature. We've inherited spiritual death. So here's what that means. We come into this world without the ability to have a relationship with God. We come into this world dead to God and alive to sin. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm not that bad of a person. You know, even this week I was thinking about it. I'm like, I'm not that bad. Like I could think of some people in Hollywood who are pretty bad. I could think of some politicians who are pretty bad, right? Like uh, we could probably think of some friends who are a lot worse than we are. And so we could look at this and we go, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm actually a pretty good person. Well, guess what? God gave us the law. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks here. God gave us this law to be this reflection to show us just how fallen we are. So I thought we'd put that to the test. So we're going to be a little interactive today, all right? By a show of hands, all right? It's okay. God already knows. You're just admitting what he already knows, all right? So don't be fearful. <laughs> so here's the first one. How many of you have ever lied before? Now, before you raise your hands, I know, a lot of you are like, oh, I've... listen, you're truthful. I appreciate it, all right? But before you raise your hand, because some of you are like, yeah, right, Okay. I'm not talking about the kind of lies that get you on the news, right? Like, I'm not talking lies like, you know, like those kinds of big lies. Like, oh man, I'm in the news now. I got a mugshot kind of thing. I'm not talking, it's like little fibs. It's white lies, right? It, uh, you could be lying about when you go to the movie theater and they ask you, do you, you, you line your purse and your pockets and your coat with all kinds of snacks because you're not going to pay the high prices for those snacks. That's lying, right? Like maybe it's the IRS. We got tax season coming up. And so some of you are going to lie. I didn't make that much, right? So now, so all the people who are like, I'm not a liar. How many of us here today are a liar? You can raise your hand. And those of you still not raising your hand, you're lying. So join in with us, Okay. You're in the club. Welcome. We're always looking for new members, okay? <laughs> Here's the second one. How many of you have ever stolen something before? Now, before you raise your hand again, because I see some of you are like, I got this one in the bag. I'm not talking about Grand Theft Auto. Stealing that again gets you on the mug shots, right? On the news. It could be stealing answers to a test. It could be stealing office supplies. Again, it could be ripping off the IRS, all right? I know, it's, it's there. So again, how many of us here have ever stolen something before? Raise your hands, right? <laughs> That's what I thought. We got a room full of liars and thieves. Revival could take, out, take place right now in this room, right? But here's the point. Who taught you how to do all of that stuff? Nobody. That's right. Nobody taught you how to do this. It's not like you had a class in elementary school lying and stealing 101 and you're like, oh, I get it now. Like that makes a lot of sense. Take it a step further. No one taught you how to commit adultery. No one taught you how to murder. No one told you how to take the Lord's name. In vain. Nobody taught you those things. Why? Because they all come naturally. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. We have inherited a nature that is dead to God and very much alive to sin. And here's why all of this is tragic. 
Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we've earned something. We've earned death. We've earned death three ways. We got the trifecta here. We've earned spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death as well. So not only did sin damage our relationship with God, sin also brought brokenness to our relationship with others. Verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now look at Adam's response in verse 12. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. (laughs) Now, just to be clear, God's not confused here. He's not asking this question because he's like, ah, what, what happened here? I got to get a little clarification here. That's not what God's doing at all. He's calling Adam into accountability. Adam's like, hey God, guess what? Everything was good when it's just you and me. Like we were just hanging out, having a good time, but it's the woman who you gave me. She's causing all these problems. And the next thing I know, we're just eating forbidden fruit and trying on clothes. Like, God, it's her fault. Take it up with her. Here's the point. Sin not only broke our relationship with God, sin broke our relationship with each other. So Adam's not just blaming God. Now Adam is also blaming the woman. So then God goes to the woman. Verse 13, he says, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, more blame shifting, pointing the fingers. Listen, Satan doesn't make you do anything. He'll give you what you want, but he doesn't make you do anything. You can't blame the devil. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame the Lord. When we sin, it's our fault. But in pride, we can't accept that fact. And so we'll justify ourselves. I make a misstep there. It's a bad habit. It's a mistake. Well, I'm a mistaker. We try to justify ourselves. And we try to point the finger and blame anyone else. And we are all doing that today. We all point the finger. Well, it's this reason. It's this person. It's that situation. I'm a victim of sin. We can't blame anyone. Adam and Eve, they're blaming each other. They're blaming God. They're blaming the serpent. A relationship now is broken. But it doesn't just end here in Genesis chapter 3. Go turn over to Genesis chapter 4. What you're going to see is Adam and Eve have two kids. Who are those two kids? Cain and Abel, right? We all know what happens. Cain murders Abel. Sin brought brokenness to relationships. Here's the point. All war, all racism, all bullying, all divorce, all murder are directly or indirectly the effect of sin on human relationships. Sometimes it's your sin, my sin. Sometimes it's the sin of others. But all brokenness in human relationships is born out of this reality of our sin against God. Here's the last reason why. It's that sin brought a curse on all creation. Verse 20 says, Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how there's national park reviews and we talk, and they were kind of funny and the kind of all of that. But I thought about that. I was like, man, as great as those national parks are, Grand Canyon, Zion National Park, as beautiful as Hawaii is, 
You know, I think about in New Mexico, uh, the big mountains there, they're called the Sandias, which is just Spanish for watermelon. Because as the sun sets, it casts this like kind of red uh, shadow on the mountains and they look like giant watermelons. You go to the beach, it's great horizons and, or, or you see the sun rise over the, the horizon or set over the horizon. Here in Tennessee, we have great beauty and things that we look at. As beautiful as creation is, it's all affected by sin. And so far, all we've been doing is we've been talking about the bad news, right? It is kind of heavy. We're all feeling maybe a little heavy with all of this, but now we're coming to the good news of this story. And that is God's response to sin. God's response to sin. See, in verse seven, we have Adam and Eve responding to the sin. They're sewing fig leaves together. Before this, they were naked without shame. After this, they're naked with shame. And the rest of human history from this point forward is all about fig leaves. So what's the significance of this? It's that sin changes everything. They are now exposed. Their nakedness was just simply a symbol of their mess before God. It was an awareness of their guilt before God. And so now God is the one who has to bring the true cure, the true remedy for sin. And so what did God do to cure us from this problem of sin? Well, it all begins in verse nine. Look at what it says. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And here's what I love about this statement. What's so cool about this statement is that what we're seeing here in God's response is that he's pursuing them. Obviously, again, this is a rhetorical question. God's not like, I can't see you guys. Where, where did you guys go? This is a good game of hide and seek. That's not what he's doing here. He's asking Adam, hey, where are you? Why are you running from me? Why are you hiding from me? This question is really for Adam to refine where he's at, to reconsider where he is at. Adam didn't know where he was. He was lost. Adam was disconnected from God. And Adam is forced by God to rethink and refine himself. See, God is trying to get a hold of Adam. And at least for me, when I read that this week, I was like, man, I hear compassion in God's voice when he asks that. I hear love. I hear mercy. I hear grace. God could have just totally ignored Adam and Eve. He could have just been like, that's it. Wash my hands with you guys. You can all rot in your sin. I'm going to go create another creation. And poof, there it is, right? He could have done that. God could have immediately struck Adam and Eve down because that's what he said he was going to do. But God reaches out to them and in grace and compassion, he pursues them. And in this pursuit, God's response to sin is one that God makes promises. Verse 15, we see, and I will put enmity, which is just, it just means hostility or division. I'll put enmity between you, the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what this verse means. There are two lines in human history, Jesus and those who love him and Satan and those who love him. And there will be a great conflict between these two lines. See, this conflict will play out all throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Read it and you'll see it. This conflict really plays all throughout the rest of the Bible as well. As Satan tries to draw people into his rebellion against God and God is seeking to save us from Satan's sin and death and God trying to bring us into the family of God. There is a great conflict that is promised. 
But there's also hope in verse 15. There's a proto-evangelium, which is just a very scholarly way of saying the first gospel or the first piece of good news that we see in the Bible. See, God is promising. I love how the NIV puts it. God is promising, hey, you might nibble at his heel. That, well, that's Nate translation. You may, uh, you may strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. See, the moment we sinned against God, God made a promise. Hey, I am going to send someone into this world, not through a human man, not through a human father, right? Because what did we inherit from our human father? We inherited sin, right? So God says, hey, I'm going to send someone into this world without the, uh, without the presence of sin. He's going to come into this world. Jesus is going to be the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And yeah, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to nail him to the cross, but he's not going to stay dead. He's going to crush your head. There is victory. He will triumph. He will win. So not only did God make a promise, but God also gave us a picture of who he's going to send. Verse 21 is that picture. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What we're reading here is that God is the first fashion designer, right? God's making clothes. But on a more serious note here, this is the first physical death that ever took place. And God himself performed it. God took the life of an animal. Why? To cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they're, they're sewing fig leaves together, right? And the fig leaves, they're not going to last. They're going to dry up. They're going to crack. They're going to break. They're, they're never going to work. They're going to constantly have to do that. And really what fig leaves represent for us is it represents our, uh, it's us trying to be, make ourselves right before God. It's us saying, well, you know, if I just do enough religious things, if I serve enough, if I give enough, if I do enough, uh, it's, it's, well, you know what, I'm going to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Because if I do enough good, then I'll outweigh the bad and God will accept me and welcome me into heaven. That's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to sew fig leaves together. But what God does is he kills an animal and he clothes them because he's saying, hey, this is a picture of what I'm going to do one day. He's going to come into this world and he's going to offer his body on the cross for our sins so that he could clothe us and cover our sinfulness with his very righteousness. And the last way that God responds to sin is that God makes provision. God made our first parents. We're all descendants of our first parents. Men are Adam, women are Eve. And like a disease that's spread through a carrier, it's infected a crowd, a crowd. We are all infected with sin. By nature and by choice, we are all rebellious and sinful. The Psalms even tell us that we are wicked from our mother's womb. We, have, we all need to be saved from sin. That's the human problem. Everything else is just in effect. Adam and Eve rebelled against God by their own desires. And the same is true today. We all do the same thing. And so what God does is God goes and he pursues Adam in the garden. He pursues Adam and Eve just like he does today. John 3, 16, one of the most popular verses says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God said from the beginning, I promise you, I'm going to send someone into this world who's going to take all the sin on himself. He's going to die for all of our sins. In fact, this week, I, I just read, even yes, last night, 
I read the symbolism of the fact that in the garden, a tree was used to, to bring about sin, right? But on the cross at Calvary, Jesus went to a tree to hang himself to die for our sins. Just as a hand went and picked a piece of fruit, Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross. And so Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for our sins. He's almost representing that which you took, that which you lost, is now going to be replaced in me. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He defeated sin's curse, the curse of death. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can be born again into that relationship with God. See, that which we lost because of sin now gets restored through the person of Jesus. And listen, one day he will come again and we will have ultimate victory over the presence of sin. We've been looking at the beginning of the book of the Bible. I want us to turn all the way to the end. If you have a Bible, go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. And as we close, I just want to read this to you. Revelation 22, we're going to look at verse 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What we are reading right there is God restoring and redeeming all that we lost because of sin. And for eternity, we get to enjoy a relationship with others. So if you don't like each other now, get used to it. Better figure it out now. This is good practice right now to get along with one another. So we'll enjoy a relationship with each other, but we're also, most importantly, going to enjoy a relationship with God as he intended it without the presence of sin at all. We have hope in this world. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.